Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church from the Gospel of Luke. Meanwhile, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around Jesus to listen to his teaching, at which the Pharisees and the religious scholars murmured, This person welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus then addressed this parable to them. He added, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to their father, Give me the share of the estate that's coming to me. So the father divided up the property between them. Some days later, the younger son gathered up his belongings and went off to a distant land. Here, he squandered all his money on loose living. After everything was spent, a great famine broke out in the land, and the son was in great need. So he went to a landowner who sent him to a farm to take care of the pigs. The son was so hungry that he could have eaten the husks that were fodder for the pigs, but no one made a move to give him anything. Coming to his senses at last, he said, How many hired hands at my father's house have more than enough to eat? While here, I'm starving. I'll quit and go back home and say, I've sinned against God and against you. I no longer deserve to be called one of your children. Treat me like one of your hired hands. With that, the younger son set off for home. While still a long way off, the father caught sight of the returning child and was deeply moved. The father ran out to meet him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, I've sinned against God and against you. I no longer deserve to be called one of your children. But his father said to one of the workers, Quick, bring out the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Take the calf we've been fattening and butcher it. Let's eat and celebrate. The son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now he's found. And the celebration began. Meanwhile, the elder son had been out in the field. As he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the workers and asked what was happening. The worker answered, Your brother is home, and the fatted calf has been killed because your father has him back safe and sound. The son got angry at this and refused to go into the party, but his father came out and pleaded with him. The older son replied, Look, for years now I've done every single thing you've asked me to do. I never disobeyed even one of your orders, yet you never gave me so much as a kid goat to celebrate with my friends. But then this son of yours comes home after going through your money with prostitutes, and you kill the fatted calf for him. But my child, the father said, you're with me always, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice. This brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, and now he's found. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Robert, for reading. Uh, Let's pray together. Undignified God, O spirit of dangerous feasts, you're always inviting the unclean to your table. You find us in far countries of hopelessness and greed. Free us from the prison of resentment and envy and bring us back to life. Through Jesus Christ, the friend of all sinners and saints, amen. This passage that we approach on today, maybe you've heard before, maybe it's the first time. It's one of the most popular parables that Jesus ever told of this prodigal son and father. 
It's a story in which we can relate to so many different parts of it and put ourselves in different places within the story. And it's, that's what I'm going to ask that we do today. Where do you see yourself in this story? Where do you see parts of you, parts of who you are in this story? Before we can jump into the parable itself, it's super important with this one to understand the context in which Jesus is sharing this parable from. Luke 15 starts with this. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. This is a rabbi, this is a savior who is allowing those who are not supposed to be near to come near to him. We already are dealing with the scandal of who Jesus is and the way he lives. They're coming near to him and the Pharisees, the religious ones and the scribes are grumbling and saying, this person welcomes sinners and eats with them. I ask you today, who is this Jesus? that welcomes sinners and eats with them. Is this the one that you follow? Shape your life after. What does it mean for us to love this one who was accused for welcoming sinners and eating with them? Here's what Jesus sees when he looks on this crowd of tax collectors and Pharisees, of sinners and scribes. Just like the prodigal and the elder son in the story, Jesus sees them both. And he sees them as one. They are family. They are not separate. The sinners and the scribes were family. They were together. The idea even that maybe they knew each other in this packed room following Jesus. There's a good chance that some of these sinners and these scribes, they went to the same preschool and played in the same sandbox. They went to the same synagogue, but their life started to take different journeys. But Jesus sees them as one, as a family. They may be separated by their life journey, their status, their society, maybe have labeled them and put those on the outside and those in the inside, but Jesus sees them as one. He doesn't divide them. He doesn't see the other. He just sees children of God, and he calls them home in their unique way. My friends, let, let Christ's vision for humanity maybe ring true for you today. That we can't just separate ourselves from others, from those who don't think and act like us, from those who had a different journey than ours. The God of the universe is gathering and redeeming and calling and bringing all together. So with the context of the sinners and the scribe, the tax collectors and the Pharisees, Jesus is welcoming all sinners and wants us to look into the lives of this parable and find what parts of us are maybe being gathered, gathered home, 
gather to the feast? What part of our story has gone far off? What part of our story stands outside the room as the party continues refusing to join in? So let's look at the characters in which Jesus sets forth. The first is this of this prodigal son. And we get two kind of movements, one that you've done in your life and maybe done this week. We get a movement of leaving. This son is leaving and leaving in a dramatic way, and Jesus sets it up in this way. He's talking about leaving home, this place of comfort, of identity, uh, where divine love has found its place. This son is walking away from it, leaving it. We all should be able to relate to this in our own life. How have we turned from our Creator? How have we attempted to create ourselves? Our leaving may be to a far-off country, or like the other son, it may be one foot outside the door of the feast. Each of us has a story of leaving, and that's where Jesus starts this parable. This prodigal son leaves, and he leaves in the most like assaulting way possible in this day and in this culture. He says, hey, you, your property, what I own when you die, I want it now. He's making a clear statement to his father. He's, he's saying, I am tired of waiting around for you to die. Or he's maybe even saying more dramatically, you're already dead to me. Who you are, your relationship, I'm done with it. So just give me what is mine so that I may leave and go create my own life. He shames the, he shames the father. And in a culture that is an honor and shame basis, this, this is a big deal. He shames the father. He shames the home. He shames the servants, the son. The entire community is affected by this. Not just the relationship between father and son, but, but the entire community is is affected by this saying, I just, I just want your property and I want to get out of here. It would have been a perfectly good response of the father to have beat his son, kicked him out on the curb, and everyone would have said, yes, that father has done a good job with his son. The son says, I, I want your property. Um, the, the word for property is bios, it's life. Father, I want your life. I want everything about you, everything you've worked for, everything that you've built, everything that I just want. Just give me your life. Be done with your life, and I want it for myself. And what does the father do? He offers it, gives it to his son. There's a phenomenal book um, by... Henry Nouwen called The Return of the Prodigal Son, in which he reflects on each of these characters. And I want to draw parts of that book out for us today. But he talks about this, this leaving. Before you feel guilty and shame about leaving, it is a part of our life. It's actually a good part of our journey. Sometimes we have to leave. We have to leave places. We have to leave relationships. We have to leave our old self. And there's a walking away. Henry Nouwen writes this, The love of the father embraces not just the return of the son, 
but also the leaving of his child. That's really important. The whole movement of leaving and returning is a movement done under the loving eyes of the father. The father doesn't say, don't go. That's not the spirit of the story. The spirit of the story is, yes, son, go. And you will be hurt, and it will be hard, and it will be painful, and you might even lose your life. But I can't hold you from taking that risk. And if and when you come back, I'm here for you, just as I'm also here for you now. In a very deep way, we are in our lives often leaving and returning. This is not a one-time event. It is an ongoing experience. I would maybe even dare to say it's an important experience. We can leave in different ways, but there's moments in which we leave. We get to a far-off place. We get far from who we actually truly are that actually helps us remind us, this, this is not me. We leave our God, our true selves, when we turn to trust ourselves and the products that we can produce. We leave every time we seek the approval of others to fulfill our self-worth. We leave when we simplify the complex, the beautiful, the holy, massive God into a simple three-point religion that we can comprehend. We leave every time we avoid that difficult conversation that we don't want to have with the person that we love. We leave when we believe the lies that we are either worthless or the lies that we think we are greater than we actually are. We leave every time when we turn our eyes away from the poor and the broken and the sidelined people of our world. We leave our loving God and our true self on a daily basis, hoping that our disordered prodigal love will love us in return. The spiritual journey is one often about leaving. Sometimes God actually just kicks people out the door and says, go into the desert. Go from the home and the land that you know. Leave. And in doing so, when we leave, sometimes we end up getting to a place where we, we, we return to find who we are. Now one puts it simply, I am the prodigal child every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. I'm the prodigal child every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. When we're up at work for that review and we're looking for this boss we don't maybe even like that much to love us unconditionally, we're leaving like the prodigal did. When we're in, in, when we're in this relationship and so enmeshed with another, hoping that they'll just love us and accept us for everything that we are, even if they're a good person, we're losing who we are. We are looking for unconditional love in places it cannot be found. We are turning our life, our children, our jobs, our marriages, our church, our pastors, our friends into this place and this God that do, it doesn't want to be. Friends, all souls is not a place of unconditional love. I wish it was. I wish I was. 
It's just not true. But this God that we come to know that created us claims to be. And so we leave searching this world trying to find it. That's just a part of what we do. It's an important part. It's a part that reminds us that it's not out there, but that there is a God who created and knows us, and that is the place it can be found. And so the prodigal leaves. Goes off into a faraway country. He's breaking the community rules, the religious laws. He's working with pigs, which in this time, um, you may know, may be like the worst thing that you could do in this culture and in this religion to, to work with this, this animal, that the meat you don't even eat. In a land that is famine, that is often Scripture's way of saying just this dry and broken place. It's brokenness all around him. Jesus is building the story. All these descriptions Jesus is using is making this dr- dramatic image of how lost and outside of the community the son has gone. And if you're a Pharisee or a scribe or one of the religious leaders, you're thinking, yep, this is what happens. This is what happens when you leave the law, you leave the community, you leave the people when you go off to do something. They're like getting excited, like finally Jesus is preaching our message. I can imagine the tax collectors and the sinners sitting there listening to this words of Jesus and going, yeah, this, this is what it feels like. This is what it feels like to me. And here, here Jesus is going to lay down the hammer because I deserve it. They're just covering themselves with the shame of it all. They're all hanging on each word as Jesus describes this parable. This prodigal son is overcome with hunger. Now, this hunger is thought of in many ways. I think, one, it is a physical, real physical hunger. At a deeper level, there is such a spiritual soul hunger within him. A hunger to be known and to be loved. A hunger to be, to be in that unconditional love of the Creator. It's a hunger that I think we all have tasted at one time or another. But often we're just too vulnerable to say out loud, I'm hungry. My soul feels empty when I wake up in the morning and I just go through the routine of the day. I'm scared about the next day of school that I have to step into. There is a hunger in each of us in this life and that hunger is a holy thing that is drawing us to the true self of who we are in God. And then the passage says, he came to himself. You see, our return, this movement of returning to God, is not just a returning to God and saying, God, you were right, I was wrong. It's a returning to our, our self, who we truly are, our passions, our purpose. And yet it takes this huge step of often vulnerability and confession to say, this is, this is not who we are. I thought I could make myself in this world. And for some of us, we may say, you know what, and I failed. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it like I imagined. For others of us, we may say, you know what, I actually got it all. I got the job, I got the relationship, I got the bank account, and I'm still lost. He comes to the deepest part of himself. 
because our returning to God is always a returning to our true self. And he walks back home, rehearsing his speech. I can think of all the times that I've like confessed to someone in my life or got ready for that apology and I'm like confessing the words and I'm like repeating the words in my head. You know that moment where you're like, okay, how am I going to say this? How does this come out right? He's repeating the words as he's walking on the trail. He may be still just like a con artist at the same moment. He may be like, okay, I'll just go back to dad and like make up some story. I just need to get some food. Or he may be deeply in the depths of his heart going, you know what? I'm returning to myself. We're not sure, but he's walking home and he's preparing this speech for his father. And while he is still a far way off, the father sees him and runs to him. God often meets us on the road, not at the end of our destination. When we're thinking, okay, I just need to get back home, I just need to get to this place, God runs to us in the midst of our journey and our road and meets us there. You see, the grace of God, it it, it doesn't follow repentance. God isn't waiting for you just to go like, "I'm, I'm sorry, and then go, oh good, I'm glad you are, here's grace. The grace of God doesn't follow our repentance, it enables our repentance. When we understand that we are the beloved, when we understand what Christ has done, when we understand the grace and the forgiveness that covers us every single moment of every single day, we are finally free enough to repent, to confess, and to be vulnerable in this life. And so the Father runs in a shameful way. No man in his age and in this culture should be running, especially to his son that should have been kicked to the curb. He runs out to him, embraces him, kisses him, and clothes him. Imagine this father pulling up his robe, running out to his son, and just begins to embrace him. As he's halfway through his speech, the father interrupts him. He doesn't get to finish it all. He rehearsed it a lot, but he doesn't get to finish it all. And the father just, the father says, okay, here's what I need to do. We need to throw a party. You need a robe. We, you, are, you are back. And I have been looking for you. He sees him. My friends, I, I hope that you know God, God sees you. I mean, really sees your life, sees who you are. He sees you on the road and the journey. He sees the leaving. He sees the returning. God sees you like a loving parent runs to you, embraces and kisses. Sometimes at night before, um, before we go to bed, sometimes my daughter Ellie will say, hey, Dad, can, can, we, can you give me a million kisses tonight? Man, I, I try to count as high as I can. And it doesn't feel embarrassing. It doesn't feel embarrassing when you're the one that just has this much love for another. And so the father embraces and kisses and gives a million kisses to his son. In Rembrandt's painting um, that we saw in the beginning, um, there's this picture of the son on his knees and the father embracing him. And the son's head is bald. Um, it could be an, an image of um, just 
the person he was painting. It could be an image of living in a famine in a world and just being hungry and malnutrition. One of the ideas is that this bald-headed son falling into the embrace of this parent, laying on his breast, it's an image of dependence. His head is shaven, but some say it's, it's the head of an infant laying at the parent's chest. Friends, we may have all the right answers about life. We may be crushing it and moving up and to the right. We may be struggling. We may be able to do all these great theological things of knowing who God is. We may make great decisions or bad decisions. But unless we are dependent on God, we have nothing in this world that can hold us up. Our return to who we are, who we are created to be, our return to love itself is an act of surrender. Gosh, I wish it wasn't. I wish there was like some rules on how to get there. I would crush it. It's a surrender, an opening of hands, a falling into love. An infantness. Our return to God, our true home, is a returning to our true self. And sometimes we can't find that beloved self until we leave and find that we must surrender our life to this God who has created us. Well, that's the picture of the prodigal son. That's maybe part of who you are. Another part of who you are is that of this elder son that is at home. When we turn our lens to the elder brother, we see someone who refuses to understand his lostness. The elder child is distant, probably more distant, I would say, but without leaving. Without leaving the rules and the structure of religion and the status quo, the elder brother has distanced himself from the family relationship. Listen to the speech that he says to his father. Listen, this son of yours... Not my brother, not the one I grew up with, not the one we used to wrestle. No, this son of yours, I am distant and separate from him. The father is calling both of his children to the reality of what we just talked about, that shalom, the restoration of relationships, this relationship with God and with one another, a restoring of oneness with God and with others. The elder son wants no part of it. He wants to be distant from his family as he stays in the same place of security. The primary prodigal, the real wasteful character in this parable, Jesus turns so quickly, is the elder son, squandering an occasion for joyous communion. His smoldering anger in this parable is saying, it isn't fair But this is precisely the heart of the matter. By definition, my friends, mercy isn't fair. So far from keeping accounts, mercy sets accounts aside altogether. Like love and joy, mercy lives and moves in a sphere above and far beyond fairness. The divine love is first and foremost a merciful love. 
And so this brother stays in a space, in a life of anger, resentment, and superiority versus the one that is offered of joy, gratitude, and humility. Think of those two worlds. Anger, resentment, superiority, or joy, gratitude, and humility. Which land do you find your soul living in day to day? Now one writes this, resentment and gratitude cannot coexist since resentment blocks the perception and the experience of life as a gift. My resentment tells me I don't my resentment tells me I don't receive what I deserve. I always manifest itself in envy. In the past I always thought of gratitude as a spontaneous response to the awareness of gifts received, but now I realize that gratitude can also be lived as a discipline. A discipline of gratitude is an explicit effort to acknowledge that all that I am and have is given to me as a gift of love, a gift to be celebrated with joy. More often than not, I and we live in a silent land of resentment, quiet superiority. We don't want people to know that's what's going inside of us, but it is. And so Jesus reveals this dutiful brother. And he ends it, the parable, with this open-ended question, almost like Jesus kind of drops the mic. Now what are you going to do with me, the one who eats with sinners, who welcomes those who have been far off? We hear the voice of the elder brother. This is the one that the, the father steps outside, stands side by side, is what scripture says. And he says, son, my beloved child, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice because the brother of yours was dead and now has come back to life, was lost, but has been found. Do you hear the compassionate words that the father has for this son? He doesn't separate the relationship. He says, my dear child, my beloved child, he steps outside of his own party. He stands side by side with this son who is an, is an enemy, and he doesn't say, you jerk, get over yourself. No, he simply whispers, my son, my daughter, my beloved, don't you see it? We are all lost. At the foot of the cross, the ground is always equal level. And the father is calling his children into this reality of shalom, into the heart, into the arms of the prodigal father, into a restoration of relationships. He's, Jesus is offering this to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's saying, this good news is also for you you also will need to surrender. He looks to both sons and says, I see you. And this is not a party without you. I want to end with this. You may see yourselves as one of the two children of this father. But I wonder if the passage is maybe asking even a little bit more of you. What if our role 
is actually to take on also the role of the prodigal parent. Are you interested in being and shaping your life like this loving father? Now it ends by saying, I now see that the hands that forgive, console, heal, and offer a festive meal must become my own. It's costly. It may end up dividing our life, our property, all of who we are, to be filled with the compassion for our enemy and for those who have gone far off. But in the midst of it, we are called like a loving mother wraps her arms around her child and says, I'm here with you. I see you. I have given my life for you. How are we doing this for others in our world? It is just us, friends. There are not other people out there. There are not good ones and bad ones. There are just children of this creator of love in this world. It is just us. But how easily we forget that. And Christ gives us an image of how we may live our life following him. To throw a party for those who feel far from themselves. To invite those in deep anger and resentment in to celebrate In communion here that we will take, we see that Christ's very life is divided and is given freely. We see it is lavished on us. In Christ, we already have all of the inheritance. It's not for something in some afterlife. It is here and offered fully now and lavished upon us. The question is, when we receive this love of Christ, how will we use this inheritance in our world? So where do we see ourselves? And how may God be calling us into the party or maybe even hosting the feast for those in our